Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The PBOC weakened its fixing below, beyond 6.7 today for the first time since the currency began tumbling in June. Joining me to discuss, I'm pleased to say, is Joseph Quinlan, Bank of America Head of Market Strategy for U.S. Trust, and he joins us here in New York. Joseph, good morning to you. Your thoughts on what is happening with the Chinese currency? Well, I think there's some weakness there, Jonathan, in the sense that the central bank's trying to buffer growth. We saw 6.7% print for a second quarter. Um, but it, when it, I don't think there's going to be too dramatic of a decline in the currency. Because remember, Chinese exports as a percent of GDP aren't as large as they used to be. China's more consumption-led growth. So I think maybe it's a signal to the U.S. administration that there's ways to play the trade game, and this might be one of them. But I'm not looking for any serious breakdown of the FX market with China. I was just um, corresponding with Bob Sinch of Amherst Pierpont, who uh, pointed out that perhaps this move in dollar-yuan is much stronger than justified by general dollar strength more broadly. Um, is that something you would agree with? Um, and, and so it's, it's, is he suggesting that it's more about China weakness? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the story, but I that I think it's weighing on the, what the Chinese are thinking. But at the end of the day, what many investors don't realize is that the, the consumer is driving the Chinese economy, not exports and investments. So it's part and parcel of the easing, but it's not going to be overdone. What seems to be driving the uh, Chinese economy more consistently, um, whether it's the consumer or exports, it's the credit impulse of China. Um, China's credit impulse has rolled over quite dramatically in the last 12 months. Do you see that turning around? No, I mean, maybe alleviating, pulling back a little bit here, because you're you're right. There's been a huge push by the by the administration, the, the officials in China, to tighten up the credit conditions. There's a lot of bad loans they've got to deal with. So maybe modest easing, but nothing going back to, like, you know, say, double-digit credit expansion. This morning, we're seeing some mild risk aversion. Futures are lower. Where you see the pain is in the commodity market. We had copper south of $6,000 a tonne. Um, we see Brent and WTI under pressure once again this morning. Why is 2018 and the weakness that we see in the Chinese currency different to what we saw in the summer of 2015 and early 2016? Well, one reason why, because we think we're longer in the cycle, that we're getting closer to the end of the the business cycle globally, as opposed to 2015, there was still a lot of monetary expansion. The Fed was still blowing out the balance sheet back then. So we're in an era now in a world where there's more central bank tightening, although I think it's going to be alleviated here, that makes it different this time. So when you look at dollar-denominated risk overseas in the emerging markets in particular, $2 trillion in debt, that has investors' concern. What's really cool here is I get to work with John Farrell, who, like he mentions, Copper. I haven't looked at copper since time began. And the answer is it's off a cliff. Now, is it doing a soybean? No. And we call it Dr. Copper. Each of these commodities tells us a different thing. How does a grizzled veteran like you use copper as a measurement of the global economy? Well, I use it, Tom, to look out, say, 12 months from now. Exactly. Longer out. Longer out. So I think you know, I think we're. I think what copper may be may be suggesting is that we're at the peak of global growth right now. And when you look out twelve months, it's going to be at least yeah three and a half, maybe closer to three as opposed to four where we are now. John, I'm going to do a ballet here and get the chart out on Twitter, Bloomberg Radio. You'll see it first. But John, it's real simple. There's been a decline in copper from 2011 to Trump. I mean, it's just that simple. And then we got the Trump pop. And boy, have we adjusted. I mean, you know, can we use a fancy word, John? It's Italian. 
Go on. On a Fibonacci basis. Oh, here we go. We're like not halfway back. Should I put it it in English? If Fibonacci had coached the Italian team, they would have made (laughs) the world. I'm sure they would have done. But the answer is, we're not back. But I'm sorry, John, you bring up copper is a big deal. Yeah, and I would say just the the, the magnitude of the move and the space of time it's happened in. Um, This is since early June. We've had an 18% move in copper. That is brutal. That's brutal, and I may, and maybe and it is suggesting that out of the European Union, you know, a big economy, you're seeing more of a slowdown than what we expected. And I think that could be the big story related to commodities is a significant pullback in Euro- European growth, which is going to put the ECB back in play in what they do next. So for U.S.-based investors, I think listening to this program right now, they're wondering how insulated are we in dollar-denominated assets at home domestically from all of these pressures that are emerging abroad. We've got some, we're insulated to a degree, particularly your small cap stocks, but you're going to see a lot of, you're already seeing the guidance from the big multinationals. There's pressures building, worker shortages, material costs are rising. The best thing a U.S. investor could do if they want to feel and create that insulated portfolio, just stay mid-small cap stocks. But noise news in the earnings cycle, in the earnings quarter, is, is always really, really difficult to get through. Is it a convenient scapegoat or something that's actually hitting the bottom line? I get why it hits our Right. We see it in the Alcoa, Alcoa projections yeah. for 2018. That's obvious to me. But for the others? No, I think it's too early. I mean, they're using, I won't say it's using an excuse. They're using it as a red, a red flag. They're signaling their costs are going up. They're going to pass it on to consumers. If they can, we'll see. That's not a given. So I think really here early, say, in the middle of the summer, we could see some bigger problems, bigger issues in the fall and the fourth quarter. So how is Chair Powell meant to respond to all of this? Because the Federal Reserve at the start of the year set us up for three hikes and as the year progressed they set us up for four um i'm wondering whether it was the right idea to accelerate the rate path as these risks are building in the background well i would agree with that because you can always extend it in 2019 you can let the cycle run and that's the key issue you don't you don't have to numerically put down a marker that we have to do x amount per calendar year let the cycle run if we got to do more in 2019 that's going to be key i mean we saw johnson and johnson with i guess they did okay make make a band-aids great again economy and and then a little bit of a forward view that was self where where's your working revenue number in your head i mean is a blended nominal gdp number seven percent was so q2 wasn't Mm-hmm. So, it, they, I, and I think you know, Tom, that could have been the peak. Yeah. But, but where do? How do? But once you're at the peak, where's the plateau? Do we stay above three and a quarter percent growth? Add on some inflation. So I think right. know, revenue growth is still going to run, run, say six, seven, eight yeah. percent for a lot of for a lot right. of sectors. But the key is what investors are worried about. Like, okay, this is as good as it gets. Where do we go from here? And do I want to yeah. sell or want to reallocate? Right. John, what do they call Band-Aids in the United Kingdom? I mean, we call call a wrench. They call them plasters. Plasters? Yeah. I didn't know that. You didn't? Plasters. Yeah, a plaster. Johnson & Johnson makes plasters. You buy a plaster, yeah. I did not. You don't buy a plaster. Folks, I learned, John Tucker, isn't it amazing (laughs) what we learn every day? From young Pharaoh? I tell you what. Plasters. You're so really you throwing some shade at me this morning, well, aren't you? you deserve yes, it. Yes, you are. Why do I deserve it this well, morning? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm in a 12-step process to, to leave the World Cup When baloney. are you getting to step 12? We want, we want this over with. How long step, is this going to take? I don't know. Step three is we ran out of beer. You know, so I'm getting I can there. help you out with the beer. Yeah. I'm Simpsons free. Yeah, good. I, you that's know, that's like that. music to my ears. Okay. And... um. You know, I, I mean, Fibonacci could look good working for the Italians to get them to okay with two thousand. With what, when's it again? Well. Four years from now? Four years mm-hmm. until and the next Qatar World Cup, is, right? Yeah, it'll okay. be in the winter. What about the heat? It's going to be in the winter. 
It's going to still. Gonna, what about not, the? Yeah. Well, we were promised air-conditioned stadiums. <laughs> I don't know if they're following no. through on that. <laughs> John Tucker, do you see that we're doing the World Cup right now? Air-conditioned stadiums and. It's over, though, right? Oh, oh. Rich Truman weighs it and says there Lovely. may be less scoring. <laughs> what have I done to you all today? Why? Why are we doing this again? Why are we doing the World Cup again? We're not. We're just Good. advancing the can story to 2022. Joe Quinlan, thank you so much for being here. Right. Joe, I want to repeat this on radio. Can you acquire shares this morning? Yes, we're buyers. We're seeing opportunities in the market here, whether it's a healthcare, energy. There's some good values out there still. Right. Aerospace, we like cybersecurity. If you're worried about Russia, right. cybersecurity, go there. Joe, Joe Quinlan, long plasters this morning is the headline. There we go. They do okay there on we that, go. Joe. Well done. Very well good. Thank done. You. Thank you, Joe, Thanks. for tolerating <clears throat> us. Do you know how many times I've said that this year? John Fair and I are looking at stronger dollar, and it started out like, yeah, a lift. And this morning, it's a real lift, and it's not yen. Yen 113.04. I think yen would be like 113.40. No, it's, it's, it's more like a EM feel with a real euro weakness as well. It's a careful concoction, which means we need to go to London and Queen Victoria Station. Justina Lee joins us working for Bloomberg in the area of foreign exchange. Justina... The renminbi has been weaker and weaker and weaker. Do we know why? Is it speculation? Is it covering of the strong renminbi bet? Is it flows? What is it? Right. Of course, overnight, we got a stronger dollar, but that's not just it. This morning, we saw the People's Bank of China weaken its fixing beyond 6.7. And earlier, people kind of saw that as a line in the sand. So now investors are wondering whether China is actually tolerating more yuan weakness, you know, to boost the boost the economy. And of course, there is also news that Chinese banks are being offered cash and given instructions to boost lending. So it seems like there are signs that maybe China is willing right. to ease monetary conditions a little bit. What the, I love that phrase, and you say it with a glow that you learned from New York University, being given instructions. What actually happens? Who's, who's giving instructions to who? Right. I mean, it's coming from the banking and insurance regulator, and it's just one of those things that you only get in China. Well, the statement they said that they said was that, you know, they want Chinese banks to earnestly lower financing costs for smaller banks. And so we don't necessarily know what goes on the scenes. But, you know, if you're a Chinese bank and you're getting this instruction from your regulator, I think you should know what to do. And of course... Can we conclude? Can we conclude now, Justina, just to jump in, that we are we're moving to a PBOC that has an easing bias now? Well, I think it's kind of hard to say because in recent years we've seen that the PBOC doesn't exactly like to use headline tools like the interest rate cut or deposit rate cuts anymore. But it seems like it's moving slightly toward an easing bias, if I can if I can even say that. So the credit impulse of China is something we discussed earlier in the program. What we've seen over the last couple of years is this big deleveraging effort. Is that starting to bottom out? Do they have to put throw in the towel on that, Justina, to some extent? Well, it seems like relative to, you know, last year, they are sacrificing some of their deleveraging objectives in order to cushion the risk to their economy from this trade war. But I think they still seem kind of cautious about sending a very strong easing signal. 
What does the street say? I mean, John and I have noticed not only the polarity of, of Yen call, say, uh, Nomura and Jordan Rochester with a polar opposite view from some of the, you know, X number of handle moves to weaker Yen that we've seen. What does the sell side say about Renminbi? Is there a one-way bet here? Well, I think opinions are still quite divergent. You know, it also depends a lot on what you think of the dollar. Because I think what a lot of analysts would point out is that if you look at the past patterns of what the PBOC does, they never really want UN weakness to get out of hand. You know, we've seen in the years after the UN devaluation in 2015 that they were very wary of capital outflows. So maybe if things get out of hand, the PBOC will step in and, of course, they've got the firepower. John, I note that Renminbi is out about 2.2 standard deviation. So maybe we're on the edge of out of hand. We've had a big move, but I just wonder, Bob Cinch brought this up to me earlier in an email um, from Amherst Pierpont. And Justina, please weigh in. Whether the move we've seen is more than justified by the general dollar strength that we've seen more broadly. And what I mean by that is, are we seeing anything abnormal in the Chinese currency against the backdrop of dollar strength more broadly? Is dollar yuan higher than it otherwise would be? Well, of course, overnight, um, you could say the dollar strength has had a big impact on what the yuan um, did this morning. But, I mean, the, it's not like the dollar has really been surging. But, you know, if you put the dollar spot chart next to the yuan chart, it's quite obvious that, you know, the yuan is weakening on its own regardless yeah. of what the dollar is doing. Brilliant. Justine Lee, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Yeah. Off our London desk on foreign exchange. Kirk Hartman with us with Wells Fargo and, of course, with years with Wells Capital Management, their global chief investment officer. And and it's wonderful to have you here as an institutional guy. When we look at this transaction, do you suggest do you suggest that it was just a silly valuation where guys like you say to Comcast as shareholders, this is dumb, don't do it? I don't think it's a silly valuation. I think that Disney had the upper hand all along. But uh, obviously, uh, asset prices were getting pretty high. So uh, I think everyone... But on a ratio price to EBITDA, I mean, it was getting silly, right? Well, it was getting very high. But I think it also shows you the tremendous value of a lot of these media assets. Right. Do do you have the power, you, your good competitors, BlackRock, Fidelity, da-da-da-da-da, do you have the power to tell corporate titans what to do? Well, we have the power in terms of what we buy and sell and also in terms of our proxy voting. So I think that uh, obviously that plays in. But, um, you know, I think this was a very uh, rational decision by all sides. Comcast up 2%. Um, 20th Century Fox negative 1% as well. You folded this off air into a discussion of telephone and uh, Time Warner, which I think is going to become Warner Media. I haven't figured out the naming. It's like Alphabet Google. I can't figure it out. But the answer is I'm enjoying a 6% dividend with telephone. I mean, the media game right now, the, the capitalization of it and the valuation of it is odd, isn't it? It is. And, uh, you know, we own, obviously own this stock that's in the index. But you look at something like AT&T, you know, six and a quarter dividend yield, nine PE, 18 percent, you know, uh, year over year free cash flow. And you say this is cheap. Obviously, it's got integration risk with Time Warner and it's got litigation risk uh, in terms of the Justice Department uh, challenging the merger. But I think, look, uh, mergers are in vogue again and vertical integration, especially in media, is going to continue. But the discipline reign here, this is really important 
important and that it's visible. It's in the media. We talked to all these great analysts. Major shout out, might I add, folks, to Craig Moffat of Moffat Nathanson. Pim, jump in here uh, as you can. You and I were sitting here with Mr. Moffat, and he was the first one as an expert on Comcast who said, you know what? The stock's down for a reason. I mean, Craig was way out front. Oh, yes. Absolutely. I mean, he was he was very clear about yeah. it, and so were the investors. Um, but just a point, if you if you don't mind, about AT and T. But the stock has taken a huge hit. I mean, the stock. I mean, six and a quarter percent is great, but the stock, okay. your capital, but, has declined. But Kirk, on AT and T with a six percent dividend, are you buying it strategically for a bounce, or is it an underlying value as they morph into? whatever they're going to morph into, nobody, nobody really knows, do Well, to Pim's point, I mean, look, it's got hit pretty hard. I think a lot of that is the litigation risk and the yeah. execution risk on Time Warner. But, you know, you got to be a contrarian in investing. So I just look at the fundamental assets. And the other thing that it's it's shown me is that uh, Time Warner is obviously a great franchise. And um, look at the, as you were talking earlier, <clears throat> look at the valuations and how they're being bid up. I made a joke in my TV script yesterday, uh, the opening when we were doing all this double negative malarkey about gap accounting. And going over to that word adjusted, which maybe is like the late 90s pro forma. Do we know the goodwill or bad will on media balance sheets? On the balance sheet, folks, is this intangible fiction called goodwill. Media people, when I talk to them about this, they get upset because they say it's a tangible asset. Is it? Look, I, I am I'm not a specific expert on media, oh, but fair, I think fair. that uh, yeah. But I think look, goodwill is always a, a somewhat of a guess. So I think again, what's hard about this is you know it's very difficult to anticipate the future value. Yeah. But I mean, one thing is clear to me: whatever your goodwill, these franchises have tremendous value. And, and um, looking again at Comcast with a dividend two point two three percent, and a sprightly Brian Roberts like fourteen percent five year uh, dividend uh, growth rate with yields up. And with cash tangible, uh, I think it was the New York Times today with a killer article in LIBOR, that world's back. Are, are we looking at dividends and dividend growth through the correct prism right now? Or do we need to adjust back to something where it competes with yield? Well, I think you have to look at value stocks right now. In other words, I think you have to look at things like free cash flow and uh, what the... Uh, how, uh, how strange. Pim, how... How strange. Look at free cash flow. Oh, yes. I, I well, feel that, so that's young. So, that's so 20th century. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to remember what's very interesting to me in terms of dislocations. Growth has beaten value for 10 straight Crushed. years. Crushed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. And I'll tell you what's interesting. The last <clears throat> yeah. time this happened, this is a little bit of a, a scary thought, was the 10 years before the Great Depression and the 10 yeah. years before the tech bubble. That's and the quote so, of the month. We're halfway through. What you, say it again. This is so important. The last time this happened was the 10 years year uh, period before the Great Depression right. and the 10-year period before the tech bubble in the early 2000 era. So look, if you're a contrarian, again, you've got to go to mean right. reversion. You've got to say value stocks are cheap here and value is going to mean revert. Can I, can I go to a Boston shout out here? Sure. I, I mean, it's not Margie Patel, who's, you know, one of your giants, but she's terrific. Um, you know, Margie knows David Triple, who was a, a force at Pioneer Group. I had this conversation over a cup of coffee in a coffee shop with Dave Triple a million years ago about that sustainability of growth being value. 
So say it a third time, folks. This is a real <laughs> clinic with Kirk Hartman. You get a run of growth being beating value, and you've at least got to be aware of it, right? Oh, absolutely. And look, these things go in cycles. If you look at factors in terms of momentum, growth, value, mm -hmm. they certainly go in cycles. And we have had a tremendous growth right. run. And, you know, at some point you have to think it's going to mean revert. To, to Matt Winkler's great column on Amazon the other day, is Amazon a value or a growth stock? It's hard to say, but I can tell you it's a long duration asset, right? It's very hard because you're buying the business model in my mind. I mean, at 150 right. P yeah. or whatever is, you know, obviously uh, you're buying it for the, uh, you know, the underlying value right. of the franchise, but it's hard on a, on a metric basis yeah. to look at these. One final question, Kirk Hartman. Did you buy anything on Prime Day? No. I bought dog biscuits for vet bill. <laughs> I know, did not. I was traveling, but, so I got home and I said, I got to do Prime Day because everybody else is doing it. So I bought little... You know, dog tasty kind of thing. You bought nothing on Prime Day? How do they Day? taste, Tom? I don't know. Oh, please. Yeah, we're going there. <laughs> you know, Pim and, I, Pim and I, we have the same camp bills for our children. Yeah. So we're down to eating dog biscuits. Right. You didn't buy anything on Prime Day? Uh, I didn't. I, it's on American. I know, but I was <clears throat> traveling. So, uh, you know, it's hard to buy things when you're traveling. Kirk Harbin, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. This is, for, so he's not supposed to comment on individual stocks. So I greatly appreciate the media comments. Sure. With us now, Craig Moffat of Moffat Nathanson. Craig, congratulations on absolutely nailing the game theory, if you would, of what Mr. Roberts would do. You have always said you were suspect about this transaction. Let's immediate drive it forward. Can you acquire shares of Comcast this morning? Well, I, uh, thanks, thanks for saying that, but I, I, I don't think I was the only one to figure out that True. Comcast had gotten itself wrong-footed on this. Um, but, you know, look, I would like to say this is a green light to go and acquire Comcast shares, but um, but this was, at this point, reasonably widely expected. And the real question now is you still don't know um, whether they are going to win or lose Sky. Um, investors are going to be very happy that they're, they've lost Fox, um, but investors would be even happier if they lost both and would go back to being a cable company, which is what investors always wanted them to be in the first place. And we just don't know the answer to that. Today's yeah. press release from Comcast says they still want Sky, um, but whether they can win it versus Disney is unclear. Within that is going after Sky, and do I understand that's a two-part transaction? They've got to take the Disney part and the Sky part? Well, it's a little more complicated. Disney, in, in this case, Fox has it, Fox is bidding for the rest of Sky that it doesn't own, but is effectively bidding as a proxy for Disney because Disney would then buy the whole thing. Um, they own 39% already, correct? That's right. Comcast is now the leading bidder, though, for um, they've got technically got an offer for the whole thing, but they would buy the minority stake and you would end up with an ownership stake in that scenario. That's the same as what you have today. It's just that now Comcast would own the majority and Disney would end up being a minority investor. Now, there's been some speculation that if that's the way things turn out, that you might see some kind of a, of a swap of Comcast ownership in uh, in Hulu, which it would then be a minority interest um, for plus plus uh, uh, some cash for um, uh, for the rest of Sky, um, 
but again, that's all. It's still all speculation because we don't really know um, whether Disney is going to increase its bid for Sky or, uh, for the rest of Sky or not. Craig Moffitt, from a strategic point of view, what makes the most sense for Comcast? Well, I guess it depends on who you ask, because obviously my answer is different than Brian Roberts. Brian Roberts' answer is they really want to get Sky. My answer would be you're better off without Sky. You know, I, my, the problem for me is I, I, my suspicion is Comcast is trying to convince itself that Sky is something that it isn't. Um, Sky is a global distribution platform that if you look at it from Comcast's point of view, it has a lot of proprietary content, things like HBO and Showtime and Disney and, and the Premier League soccer. Um, that, is, that is the basis of, of becoming something like a global uh, OTT provider like Netflix. What, what Sky really is, though, is a satellite TV company, and we've seen what happens to satellite TV companies because fundamentally their distribution technology is obsolete. And so the tension between those two things, can you transition from being a a, a rapidly obsolescing satellite TV platform to being a next-generation OTT provider fast enough that you can beat the ex- the expiration date on a lot of that proprietary content right. is the challenge that Comcast would face. And I don't think investors at Comcast are particularly yeah. enthusiastic about taking on that challenge. Do you and your colleague Michael Nathanson have a price to EBITDA on what Mr. Iger ponied up after Comcast bid up the price? I mean, folks, this is the comparison of the value of the transaction down the income as compared to down the income statement with a little bit of balance sheet ballet. What's the price to EBITDA that Mr. Iger will enjoy in acquiring these assets? Well, remember um, that there will be synergies, but there will also be some divestitures of... Okay, so you're do, give, me two, give me two numbers. Pre-synergy... Excuse me, folks. We don't use the word synergy on uh, <laughs> Bloomberg surveillance. After cost cuts and slashing, what will be yeah, the two well, ratios? Well, it's going to depend on on what he can get for the regional sports networks that are going to have to be divested. Right. But I think it's it's likely that the the multiple will come out to be something like twelve to thirteen times net of all of that. Okay, so not um, so, not stupid. Yeah, high but not stupid. Comcast, you know, <laughs> and that was the problem for Comcast is Comcast because of because it had gotten yeah. wrong footed would have had to, and because of the regulatory challenges, probably would have had to bid at least into the low 40s. If Disney had matched it, that would have put Comcast, in order to win, into the the mid to high 40s. And then you're talking about 14 times after synergies. That's crazy. Quickly, Pim, because I know you want to get a question. That's all right. I like the high, but not stupid. Two years ago, CFA Level 2, they are so influenced by Moffitt, they had a question on price to EBITDA, A, cheap, be expensive, and the third choice was high but not stupid. High but not stupid. Yeah, not there's stupid. a bumper sticker for you. Um, yeah, I'm going to copyright that one. That's yeah, me. be careful there. Um, uh, Craig, while all this is going on, I do assume that there are other companies that are going about their business, such as Netflix. Any thoughts on anybody else who maybe is taking advantage of all the focus on takeover and acquisition to actually just run their business and make a lot of money? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm always a little suspicious of those arguments about X, Y, or Z company was, quote-unquote, distracted because of M&A. Um, the CFO and the CEO may be worried about 
um, the distraction. But generally speaking, the people who run the business on a day-to-day basis are, are, are probably not all that distracted. So I, I'm never all that sympathetic to those kinds of arguments. Um, you know, the real question for for Netflix, I think, um, and it's covered by my partner, Michael, but Michael and I have, I think, very similar views on Netflix. That, you know, the real tension here is just Netflix is clearly going to be very, very big, but there's a debate about how how secure is the moat around Netflix's business. Is sheer size in the media business going to create an impenetrable moat, or is it just going to create a big business, and there are going to be potentially other big businesses as well? And those are two very different outcomes, because if it is the latter, there's no reason to believe that the returns on capital in just another big business without an impenetrable moat will be exceptionally high. And right now, Netflix is priced for exceptionally high returns. And so it's a worthy debate. And you're going to find out a lot based on now that Disney is getting Fox and Disney effectively pursues something like a similar strategy. Just quickly, this is not like doing an AOL, is it? I mean, you know, we're not talking Time Warner AOL quality here, are we? No, 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 no. These are Disney, you know, has to be. And again, it's Michael's company to cover. But but Disney has to be given a lot of credit for having put the strategy in place and and having executed very deliberately around building the assets to pursue the strategy they want to pursue. Craig, thank you. Thank you for coming on with us. We'll look for notes from Moffat Nathanson to their clients uh, coming up. Uh Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.